thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. It's 25 minutes to 10 o'clock. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. And we are satisfying your curiosity about life, about nature, about science, technology even. So do give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Chris, good morning. Morning, Midi. Good morning. I believe that you are experiencing heavy storms in the in the UK this morning. Well, luckily the storm has passed where I am. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it was quite an interesting night. <laughs> I discovered I have quite a lot of leaks in my house that I didn't know were there before. Yeah, there's quite a lot of towels and things soaking up water now. But no, no, it's really crazy. Um, hailstones, really, really big ones, lots of water. So all the buckets that are sort of outside that have been used for building work and things are absolutely full to the brim. So it's a really, really big deluge we had. Mm, well, I hope you survive it. Now that you've started on leaks, what causes a leak? Why is it that one part of a roof or ceiling would, would have a leak when they're exposed <laughs> to the same element? Is it just bad uh, construction? It's it's really all to do with which direction the wind is coming from because, of course, a roof uses gravity to pull the water from the top of the roof and off down to the sides, but you've got an underside to that roof and if the water gets blown onto a wall hard enough and fast enough, it can also, because of the wind being deflected upwards, be carried upwards under the eaves of the roof and then then it's in and I think that's what was happening to me last night. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then uh, screams. Why are screams so scary? I wouldn't have thought that there's science behind this, but hey, there's science behind everything. Yeah, there's a beautiful paper. It's in Current Biology this week by a researcher from New York called David Popel. And he and his team wondered, why do we find screams so arresting? Why do we pay attention to them so quickly? How do they have that bone-chilling, spine-tingling, hair-raising effect on us? And they've they've put this to the scientific test, and they got a group of volunteers, got them to say some things, and then scream some things in their laboratory, and they analysed the sounds. And they have found that just as we uh, use various different sound frequencies, pitches, to make our voices, that you can also add additional information to your voice by changing the amplitude, the loudness of those frequencies. And you can change that frequency at a certain frequency so that, in other words, the voice wobbles a little bit in terms of loudness. If you analyse the sound of normal speech, those wobbles always occur less than five five to ten times per second, not more than 20 times a second. If you analyse a scream, you find the loudness wobbles around between 30 and 150 times per second. And when you play sounds to people that Mm -hmm. dominate in that particular uh, regime, they will say the sounds are harsh or unpleasant. So it's interesting that you find this change in screams. What the researchers then did was to say, well, okay, let's have a look at alarms like burglar alarms and fire alarms, artificially made things that are designed to get our attention. And, oh, hey, presto, we've accidentally uh, stumbled upon exactly the same trick uh, when we're designing artificial alarms. They also make the amplitude wobble uh, with this frequency of between 
between 30 and 150 hertz. Um, they then went a step further and started testing screams on people that had had this wobble filtered out from them. And people didn't find them as scary as when the wobbling was there. Mm -hmm. And then they did brain scans on people to show that when you are subjected to this particular range of, of modulated frequencies, your amygdala, which is the part of your brain that encodes fear, this becomes very, very active but only when those frequencies are there. And uh, people, when they did other tests, were able to localise the source of a scream when these sounds and these sound frequencies were present much more quickly than any other sounds. So it looks like we have evolved and our brain has evolved to have this special, almost like unique set of um, important fingerprint frequencies that correspond to a scream or to danger. And our brains are very tuned into those sounds and the way those sounds change mm. so that when we hear one of them, we... A, pay attention to it, B, it gets our attention quickly, and we're very good at localising where it's coming from, so we can work out what to do about it. Wow, fascinating. Ronnie and Grotter Bay, good morning. Hi. Mm. Um, I just want to know, why does the placebo effect actually work? What causes it to work? Hello, Ronnie. Well, of course, we, we are living in, in a world constructed entirely by our brains because um, the world we inhabit is one that our brain shows to us, but it's just our brain's decomposition and then reconstruction for us of the world around us. And the brain also constructs its model of our world internally. And there are parts of the brain that are concerned with pleasure, there are parts of the brain concerned with pain, and there are parts of the brain concerned with planning what you think is going to happen. And in order to make you feel motivated and compelled to want to do things, and to reward yourself when you do something that's good so you do it more often, you have all these circuits which are there to give you pleasure or to make you feel good. And the placebo effect really is hijacking part of that system. And it all revolves around the brain's internal system, which works the same way in your body as, as morphine does when you administer morphine or heroin and drugs like that. A study done in the Journal of Neuroscience a number of years ago now, they had a, a bunch of people who volunteered for this, interestingly. Uh, they put into the cheek muscle of these people a small needle and injected at a slow rate a salty solution. Uh, when you inject potassium in this way, it's very, very painful. And they adjusted this uh, administration of potassium so that it, as, you, as people got used to the pain, it increased the rate of infusion. So the pain stayed nearly constant, according to the volunteers. They were watching what was going on in the brains of these people all the time this was going on. And they say to them, right, now we're going to give you a very powerful drug, which is extremely good at uh, taking away pain. Mm -hmm. It was, in fact, water. But the people didn't know that. And they injected it, and as soon as they injected this water into the people, the activity in the brain regions where the, the body's natural morphine-like chemicals went through the roof. And at the same time, all of the subjects said that they could tolerate the rate of infusion of this painful potassium in, in, injection going up much, much higher than they could before. In other words, they'd not received any pain relief whatsoever, but they were expecting to receive some pain relief. This engaged their brain's natural pain-killing chemicals, and that in turn led to them tolerating a lot more pain um, because they, they couldn't feel it. They were expecting it to work, so they did. And therefore, we think of the placebo effect as, as a, a similar representation. When you uh, expect something to happen or you expect to get a benefit from something, it puts your brain into a much feel, uh, better feel-good state, and so you're actually more likely to make that happen anyway. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Thank you. Voter in Brooklyn, good morning. And I think we've had this question before, but hey, why not, since this is such a common experience for all of us. Voter, good morning. Hi, good morning. Morning, Chris. 
Uh, I'd just like to mm-hmm. know, um, why do we get goosebumps on our, our skin? And then if you have an itch and you scratch it, why does the scratching relieve the itch? Okay, well, those are two quite different phenomena, but the goose pimples one, let's deal with that first because that's, that's quite easy to explain. If you look at where you get a goose pimple uh, individually, you'll see that they all coincide with where a hair comes through the skin. And this is because of a throwback from our animal origins. When animals are frightened or cold, and usually hairy animals, they will make their hair stand on end. And they do that to do two things. One, when they're cold, if you stand your hair on end, then you create a thermal barrier in the form of an insulating layer of air trapped inside your fur, which keeps you warmer. If you are an animal that's hairy and you're threatened, if you make your hair stand on end, you look much bigger, and if you look much bigger, a potential predator may think twice about going for you because you're perceived to be more of a threat than when you're smaller. In both cases, the way this is achieved is that the sympathetic nervous system, which is part of your automatic nervous system, an unconscious part of your nervous system that takes care of day-to-day things that your body needs to do without you actually needing to worry about it, that switches on and activates what we call... um, a piloerector muscle. In the base of each hair is a tiny muscle which is responsible when it pulls on the hair root for making the hair stand upwards. And that muscle, when it shortens itself, makes a bulge in your skin and that's your goose pimple. And and as I say, this will happen when you're cold, it will also happen when you're frightened. Anything that activates your autonomic nervous system, it's your body's response to stress. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, your second question, just remind us what that was. Voter? Uh, yes, uh, if, you know, if you have an itch and you scratch it, why does it relieve? The, the scratching... Why do you uh, get relief? The, 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 yeah. Yes. yeah, in the skin, there are a population of itch-specific nerves. They look just like the other nerves that supply your skin. They're tiny, um, they're amongst the smallest nerves in the body, but they communicate using a very specific nerve transmitter chemical with the spinal cord, and they tell the spinal cord that I am a nerve which comes from patch X of the body, and when I'm turned on, I am signalling that there is something itchy going on. At the same time, there are nerve cells coming into the spinal cord which convey pain sensation, and they converge on the same place. When they're switched on, that part of your spinal cord is saying, right, this part of my body is experiencing pain. When you turn on the pain nerve cells, they turn off the signal from the itch nerve cells. So when you scratch yourself, you're causing a small, low-grade amount of pain in the itchy part of your body, and in this way you are inhibiting the flow of information in the itch nerve, so your body stops noticing the itch, notices the pain and then when you stop scratching yourself the pain goes away and the itch stays away because there's a period of inhibition of those nerve cells afterwards and it's very similar in fact to when you hurt yourself you tend to rub the area better and when you rub the area better you're stimulating what we call low threshold mechanoreceptive afferents which in plain English means nerve cells that respond to light stroking of the skin and they in turn turn off the pain nerve cells. So that's why when you bash yourself, you rub it better. Right, uh, voter in Brooklyn. Is it Sarge and Enver? But Thomas is telling me to go to an ad break, so I have to do that now. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 021 Sarge in Woodmead. Have I said your name correctly? Yes, correct. Okay, wonderful. Go ahead, please. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about bad bread. How can I sort this problem out but as bad that is concerned it's quite embarrassing hmm. shame man 
Okay. Well, the medical term for bad breath is halitosis, and it is uh, actually caused by a number of different things. The bottom line, though, is that the reason we get whiffy breath, especially in the morning, is because your mouth is a heaving morass of bacteria. In fact, the mouth of everybody is a heaving mass of bacteria. They grow on all the surfaces. They grow on your teeth, they grow on your gingival margin, where your teeth meet your gums, they grow all over your tongue, over your tonsils. Our mouths are full and heaving with millions and millions of microbes. Now, during the daytime, when we're eating lots of things, drinking lots of things, then the passage of food and fluids is pushing those microbes out of the way, and the saliva, which is secreted into your mouth from your salivary glands to help lubricate the um, emulsif- um, the consumption of food and uh, also to, to help you to swallow stuff. This also contains antibodies and other chemicals that, again, suppress the microorganism's growth. When we go to bed at night, though, the secretions dry up. You, you know that when you wake up in the morning, your mouth does feel quite dry and also your eyes tend to be quite dry as well and the lacrimal gland works quite similarly to the salivary glands. So you're not supplying this water to wash away the bugs, you're not supplying the antibodies and other things to suppress their growth. So they tend to grow a bit more. And that uh, means that, that uh, they're more likely to be uh, there in high numbers and they're therefore also more likely to be there in different numbers because the normal selection pressure that keeps the, the, the relative populations in check is removed. And as a result, then they're going to produce various byproducts of their metabolism in the same way we do when we eat a big meal or a curry. There are inevitable consequences from the rear end. The bacteria effectively are doing the same thing in your mouth and they will make various whiffy compounds, especially sulfur-dominated compounds, that smell pretty bad. The simple remedy is you clean them away. And uh, if you brush your teeth regularly, that's a, a good start. It's a good help. Flossing your teeth to get the stuff out from between your teeth means you're not feeding these microorganisms so well. And you're again removing the numbers from your mouth. Um, people also advise um, to brush your tongue because yes. the tongue has got a lot of tissue on the back of it and, and the tongue wears itself away quite quickly when you're eating lots of rough food and things and so it has a very high cell replacement rate. If you don't eat food which is nice and fibrous uh, on a regular basis then the layers of tissue on the tongue can build up to become a bit thicker. This feeds bacteria and also provides more places for them to lurk. If you scrub your tongue, um, some people use a toothbrush, it helps to detach some of that tissue detaching some of the microbes and removing their food source. Some people have problems with their tonsils. Mm. If you have uh, um, particularly deep crypts in your tonsils, which are the lymphoid tissue, the part of your immune defense at the back of your throat, then you can actually get little pits there where microbes exist in a relatively oxygen-poor environment where they can flourish and produce more whiffy compounds dominated in sulfur. And, uh, and sometimes that requires doctors to help you with that particular problem. Um, some people say, oh, what about using these mouthwashes and things? Well, mixed evidence for that, because a lot of these mouthwashes are, dom- are full of alcohol, and what they do is dry your mouth out more, they temporarily deal with the microbes, but then they make it more likely that the microbes will overgrow with a different population that may in fact paradoxically be more smelly later. And then, of course, there's the common reasons why people get bad breath. If people have um, eaten certain things, then these chemicals that you take into your body in food, they come out through various routes, and garlic and sulfur-dominated chemicals in food can be breathed out, and that will make things smell. So that's worth bearing in mind. And then there are other people who have problems with their metabolism, or people who don't drink enough and get dehydrated, or people who have liver disease. So there's a range of different reasons why people may also have uh, smells on their breath. But oral hygiene and seeing a dentist, if you're really worried, is a good place to start, I'd say. Let's go to uh, Enva in Fairways. Good morning. 
Hello. Enva, good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you. Uh, I'd just like to a uh, uh, a question answered here that has been bugging me for a long time. Look, when one goes to the doctor and you need to uh, uh, give a sample of urine or, 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 or uh, uh, and you know, they just send you maybe to a next room or whatever, and uh, there's no... Now, I was wondering, why is it always when you turn open a tap, then... You, you happen to get that leg. But other than that, you cannot actually force to get to get a urine sample. <laughs> Do you hear that? Yeah, I know what you mean. Great. Yeah. Um, it's, um, this is a phenomenon called bashful okay. bladder syndrome. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this is very, very common. Most, most men will say they have experienced this regularly when they go to the the men's room and you want to go for a wee and then someone else turns up and stands next to you and they want to go for a wee and no one can get started and uh, it's because i think it's the stress um we we all kind of worry about what everyone thinks of us and we all worry about kind of standing there in this very vulnerable way with your private bits out and as a result people tend to get stressed and if you get stressed then your fight or flight reaction your autonomic nervous system which i mentioned earlier in the program in the context of goose pimples well this also has an effect on the muscles that control the bladder outflow it suppresses the action of the muscle that makes the bladder contract to expel urine and it also tightens the sphincter which keeps the bladder closed so you don't wear yourself the idea is that when you're running away from someone the last thing you want to be doing is wetting yourself uh, mm. or thinking about going to the wee and uh, so as a result this makes it hard to get started when you actually want to go and so when someone tells you right uh, i need a urine specimen from you even if you did want to go now you're thinking oh gosh i better hurry up and do this so that makes a person stressed because they think they're holding someone up and that then makes it harder <laughs> to go so you don't get started so you become more stressed <laughs> and because you become more stressed you can't start, and it, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy and i think that's probably what's being referred to here i know i have have had this certainly in the men's room bashful bladder syndrome <laughs> yeah. an important phenomenon for everyone to know about <laughs> thank you so much Enva, for that question i have an sms here uh, somebody wants to know chris how long how long does food stay in the stomach well mine is every five minutes but anyway five minutes only. <laughs> <laughs> in thomas's case well we won't go there um the answer is the transit time through the intestine varies from individual to individual and it does vary between different food types but people have done simple studies where what you do is feed people something indigestible and brightly colored so easy to spot mixed in with the things they're eating so normally little beads or something then you count them in and then you can count them out and you obviously collect everything that goes out and you can then see how long everything comes and what the latency what the 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 throughput time is and it varies it can be as as few as a few hours from one end to the other end or it can be a day or so it's normally about a day for what goes in to then emerge in residue form the next day in terms of what goes into the stomach though well the stomach is a receptive bag it it undergoes receptive relaxation so it's fairly small when it's empty but can very easily fill and fill and fill in order to enable you to take your fill and the stomach then secretes various juices gastric juices which include enzymes and acid to begin to break down what you've eaten and get it from a lumpy bumpy stodgy consistency into a very runny liquid and once it's in a runny liquid form it then gets squirted out into the small intestine where uh, the real process of digestion and absorption of all of the goodies in there begin and that can take a number of hours so several hours after a big meal you'll still have a relatively full stomach but several hours more after that you'll have an empty stomach and it will all be then being dealt with by your intestines 
Chris, before we let you go, you know, Thomas has just become a dad. He's become a father. He's got a little boy. Yeah, yeah I saw the scan <laughs> pictures. Yeah, well done, Thomas. Well done, Thomas. And he was taken by surprise because, you know, he wasn't expecting the baby. <laughs> and uh, two days ago, we had a show, uh, Chris, where we're doing tips for Thomas. I wonder, I know I'm ambushing you. I wonder if there's just one thing as a dad yourself uh, that you'd like to share with Thomas. Any advice or tip or tip? Well, what did I do? I mean, um, I, I think I moved out into the spare room, Thomas. <laughs> and this has two bonuses, right? One, it means that you don't have any more. And, uh, and two, no, I'm only kidding. I did move into the spare room for a little while because it, it was very hard. It was very hard trying to do my medical job and, uh, and uh, get no sleep. And luckily, my wife had some maternity leave. So she said, you go in the spare room for a while and, uh, and, and I'll deal with the worst bit at the beginning. And, uh, and then it all got, all got right after that. And we do have two kids now. So <laughs> I did move oh, you did return, into, the, hey? into the other. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a nice advice. Uh, so, Thomas, give your wife some space exactly. to... I'm doing that. You're doing that, hey? Yeah. Right. yeah, that was the diplomatic way of putting it. Look, I'm going to give you some space, love. <laughs> <laughs> so that you think about what you did. <laughs> yeah. Have a lovely weekend, Chris. We'll chat next week. <laughs> Cheers, then. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.